Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Woman in Compliance podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley, and today we've got a guest for you, uh, Chris Robidoux. Um, welcome, Chris. Tell us about your background. Well, hi, Mary, and thanks so much for having me on this podcast. I've been an avid subscriber for a while. I um, came about compliance in a way that I think is very similar to many compliance officers that you know, uh, and that is by accident. Um, I was a criminal lawyer for seven years. Um, I graduated first with a Bachelor of Arts in Women's Studies and then went on to law school. And I moved to Calgary, Alberta, Canada in 1991, where I started as a criminal defense lawyer. I got a very unorthodox opportunity to switch completely mid-flight into a corporate role in 1998 so that is when I made the jump to a, to a general counsel position um, with a propane gas company. Um, through that role and as well uh, a, a subsequent role as a compliance officer for a utility, I discovered that I really loved ethics and compliance as a way of avoiding criminal defense work. Um, <laughs> and so I really started to focus on it. And when my kids um, were very little, I thought that it would be a great part-time gig to do only transnational <laughs> compliance as, a, as a, in a consulting role. So I started up my consulting company called Compliance Works. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. as you might expect, it was not part-time. And I do not do part-time very well. Um, <laughs> it was... It was. It went from zero to a hundred. It it took off like a rocket. Uh, it it clearly filled a need that I don't think anyone really knew even existed yet, um, because nobody in Canada at that time was really talking about about corporate compliance. Um, so I operated Compliance Works for four years. Uh, it was the opposite of part-time. And, and finally, it was my husband that suggested that really, if I was going to do this ethics and compliance thing in a big way and large-scale investigations and large-scale compliance programs for these very hungry Canadian multinational com- or, and multinational companies, uh, you know, he suggested you might need the infrastructure of a law firm. And so I did that. I moved that practice to a, a, a what is now an international law firm and did that for nine years. And just two years ago now, I've come back seemingly full circle into an in-house uh, compliance officer role with an oil and gas company operating here in Calgary with all of our oil operations in South America. So that's the real circuitous, uh, unorthodox route that I've taken to get here. And definitely not part-time. Never part-time. I want (laughs) part-time. 
Uh, Chris, you have the very prestigious title and accolade of being a Queen's Council. And in New Zealand, a Queen's Council designation is only bestowed on our very best and brightest lawyers. Tell us about your achievements that led to this honour. As we just discussed, there really was no one working uh, to advance the role of compliance in, and ethics in corporations um, at that time, um, at the time of my appointment, which was January 1st, 2008. So that was seen at the time as, I think, a real contribution to the legal profession here in Alberta, which tends to be what the government um, recognizes when making those appointments. Um, you know, recipients have to have been called to the bar for at least 10 years. You know, the title recognizes some outstanding contribution to the profession or to public life. So uh, for me, it was it was primarily the, the work that I had done to advance this, this, this role and this profession. You know, it, it's interesting because, um, you know, the award's been criticized uh, in Canada in the past on the basis that the appointment, uh, you know, was viewed as depending largely on political uh, affiliations, et cetera, and suggestions that perhaps the whole tie to the monarchy and, you know, was not consistent with modern Canadian identities. But, um, you know, in the provinces of Canada where we, where we continue to appoint lawyers as Queen's Council, there have been reforms that have been made to depoliticize the award. So we're screened by committees that are composed of representatives from the bench and the bar and the law society and the, the various bar associations. And, and that is how those... Um, those recognitions are made. And, and one more interesting tidbit is that, you know, as you pointed out, the title is, is Queen's Council. The full title is Her Majesty's Council Learned in the Law. And, um, but of course, during the reign of a king, that title will change to King's Council or Casey. So it'll be interesting because in my lifetime, we, uh, we assume that Queen Elizabeth II will be succeeded by uh, Prince Charles or and or Prince William, uh, and that will mean that my title will then change to Casey. Oh, that is cool. And they never taught us um, the full-length title at law school in New Zealand, so I learned something today. Thank you. <laughs> at Great Woman in Compliance, we love and laud trailblazers. And you are someone who has really led the way for anti-corruption in Canada, which we've just touched on. So why don't we elaborate a little bit more on that? Tell us about your role in the first two anti-corruption cases and how did they shape the future of compliance for your country? Well, that is very kind of you to call me a trailblazer. But I mean, it, it is at least partly or largely due to luck and timing you know, given the route that I've already uh, shared with you about how I came into compliance, uh, you know, I saw at the time in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, what was happening in the United States as far as enforcement of these uh, laws and transnational laws. And, and we know in Canada that what we see happening in the United States as far as regulation and enforcement eventually tends to trickle north to Canada. And that was in a time when the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act was really starting to see a boom in enforcement. And so, 
you know, not so much maybe a trailblazer as, you know, just the, the, a surfer that happens to see the right wave that is coming and positions herself, you know, for that wave. And so um, in 2009, when I was a partner in a national law firm in Canada, um, our client, Nyko Resources, was the first Canadian company to find itself in the crosshairs of Canadian enforcement officials for anti-bribery violations alleged to have occurred overseas under Canada's version of the FCPA, the Corruption of Foreign Public Officials Act, the CFPOA. And we were defense counsel for NICO, and that case resulted in a, um, a guilty plea and a conviction and a very large fine for that company. Then, of course, that positioned us well to assist the next Canadian company in 2011, Griffiths Energy International. That was a company, um, a Canadian private oil and gas company that was doing business in Chad in Africa. And it was the case um, that was the very first voluntary self-disclosure of corrupt activity under the CFPOA. And that really was the case that I, I think companies on fire a little bit here in Canada and got everybody to take notice. It was um, a case where payments had been made to a third party that were destined for a public official. There was no regime or framework in place for a company to do a voluntary self-disclosure, but given the circumstances of the company, it was, it was required and it was appropriate. And so we had to manage that um, with first the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, who is the investigative authority, and then with the Department um, of Public Prosecutions, the enforcement prosecuting agency after that without there being any roadmap, no guidance. We don't have, we, we had at that time no legislation or framework to govern these, these self-disclosures and there was no way to negotiate a deferred prosecution or a non-prosecution mm -hmm. agreement. Those simply did not exist. So, we, you know, we had to kind of go in blindly and the authorities had to trust us and we had to trust them and the result was also, you know, again, like in NICO, the result was a guilty plea. But I do recommend the sentencing decision in that case, which you can find um, by Googling, or if you or your listeners get in touch with me, I can send a link to, to the decision. But Justice Scott Brooker went on for four pages in the transcript discussing what that company did to identify and remediate the the, the 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 violations mm -hmm. and it really does serve as a really good roadmap uh, for companies so so that was really the um you know really our role in those two cases and i think the way they will shape the future of compliance is that it it demonstrates that our enforcement authorities are perhaps not yet at a level of the DOJ in the United States or the SFO in the UK or other agencies, but they are getting better. They are working effectively with their international counterparts. And, um, and, and there's now a bit of a, a precedent that's been set by our courts 
for what is going to be expected for companies who are seeking leniency in sentencing and are seeking to avoid probation or monitors. And that really is the, you know, the, the Brooker guidance that I described earlier. Fantastic. And you know what, um, Chris, I think you're being a little bit too humble and not giving yourself enough credit. Um, if it was so easy to determine that this was going to be the next big thing, wouldn't all other lawyers have turned their minds to it? But I think it takes a special person to be prescient enough and also get the timing right. If you'd moved in too early, your business would not have been a, a success whatsoever. If you'd left it too late, um, you wouldn't have been able to grab the opportunities that you did. So um, I will continue to think of you as um, a, a trailblazing model, um, even if you're not quite there with me. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. And, you know, one of the things about being um, prescient is that um, quite often it's the case that whatever happens in one country um, could be the start of um, almost like a forest fire for the rest of the world. And Canada is in the relatively unique position. And I don't mean to um, disparage you in any way. My country is kind of the last to um, ever come to do almost anything. So, um, you know, you guys are kind of shadowed um, or overshadowed by the United States in many ways. Um, and so you're in a, a slightly unique position, I think, in that when it has come to the legalization of cannabis in Canada, uh, you guys are kind of at the forefront and the United States has an opportunity to learn from you. Um, so I'd like to ask you, um, what is your top consideration for in-house professionals who may shortly have to deal with employees and lawful cannabis consumption in the United States and, of course, other jurisdictions? Because, of course, New Zealand is probably watching eagerly and hoping to, to jump on board as well. What um, other jurisdictions far and wide, what advice would you have? That is a great question. And I'm not entirely sure that Canada can be that much help on the issues relating to the legalization of cannabis because it really still is so new here. And Canada is, is dealing with, uh, you know, a lot of the wrinkles that early implementation of these laws and these rules have brought about. Um, so I, I hope you will ask me that question in, um, in another year, but, I would say that at least we here in Canada already have a very strong framework for human rights and the protection of privacy, data protection, et cetera. Those protections, um, I think, um, work to help us ensure a very rigorous framework for testing in an employment context for impairment by cannabis. And it's something that's very uh, near and dear to my heart because, of course, I work in a safety-sensitive industry, that being oil and gas. And so, you know, I think that the most important lesson that, that we have learned is that you need to address issues of impairment, presence of cannabis in the system, and ability to perform a job function, you need to address what is your position going to be on that early and consistently. So um, will you test for impairment 
pre-hire, pre-site access? Will you seek to perform random testing for the presence of alcohol or drug in an employee system? Or how about simply post-incident? All of these are questions that you can't really decide on the fly. You need to think about it ahead of time. So, you know, whether we're doing it right or wrong, I think remains to be seen. But I think that that will be, uh, I think, uh, one of the top considerations for in-house professionals when cannabis is ultimately legalized across the board in the United States, which my personal view is I anticipate that that will occur. I think that's probably right. Um, And I'm thinking as well for... New Zealand, um, we will potentially follow a similar route um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if several other countries do as well and I'm sure that several will hold off from, from legalisation in the, the short to medium term at least. I think a, a related um, question that I would be considering um, would be whether you're going to choose to treat cannabis exactly the same as you do alcohol in terms of your Um, workplace policies um, or will you categorize it differently and have um, different standards and rules for it? Well, exactly, because then what it does is it forces an organization to consider issues of social hosting, social consumption. Um, I may not be allowed to consume alcohol, you know, in my office or on my company's premises but am I entitled to have a beer at lunch? Mm-hmm. That is something that has been in the past, perhaps, you know, more socially ex- acceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, will it be the same with cannabis? And, you know, I think the experts are all still weighing in on some of those issues. How mm-hmm. do you quantify the amount of cannabis, the amount of intoxication due to cannabis use? All of these, uh, I, I think it's, it's a very dynamic issue Mm-hmm. It, um, it, it, it continues to evolve, and I think that smart compliance professionals are going to keep their ear to the ground and their eye on the road and be, be very uh, careful to watch other jurisdictions as they work their way through some of these issues. Um, shared with us your life cycle um, of um, being in various positions, um, consultancy, law firm, and now in-house. What was your biggest lesson learned transitioning from a compliance and investigations practice in a global firm to a compliance role in a corporation? The greatest lesson I believe I've learned is that I needed to have far greater respect for the job, the very difficult job that in-house compliance professionals are called upon to do Mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. I had forgotten, to be honest, I mean, I was last in-house in 1998 and from 2000 to 2004. And I had forgotten about the difference in converting legal advice to action in those two very different environments. You know, as an outside legal professional, I didn't have to get buy-in from executives. I didn't have to use scarce resources to operationalize my advice. Mm-hmm. Um, it was quite a bit easier, I believe, when I was outside counsel. I would study an issue, give advice, tell folks what to do, uh, then leave, Mm -hmm. then send a big bill. Yeah. (laughs) But now, but now I give the advice. I have to tell them what we have to do 
and now I'm the one that's expected to do it. And I think that, um, you know, that's, that's a, a good and important lesson that I've maybe not learned, but I've been reminded of. Mm. And um, I suppose when you next go into private practice, um, I'm, I'm hoping you'll remember that because I know that you're um, very ambitious and, and you, you're a lady who keeps moving. So I'm sure that um, there are still many more chapters in store for you in your career. So it's great to have that little reminder at front of mind should you choose to go back into private practice. Oh, don't hold your breath, Mary. <laughs> Whatever it is, um, I know it's going to be long hours and hard work. <laughs> One of your key strengths is in investigations. And in fact, you've previously been named one of the top 100 women in investigations by Global Investigations Review. I note additionally that in 2013, you were named one of Canada's top 25 most influential lawyers by Canadian Lawyer Magazine. And kudos to you for uh, those well-deserved accolades. I think one of the trickiest areas of investigations is when you may have someone who is claiming retaliation for raising a compliance concern but the reality is that separately, this individual has been a performance management concern for some time. And of course, we know that best compliance practice is to document well um, when managers first start performance managing someone in order to have a paper trail that there are bona fide performance concerns. What else should companies do in this situation, particularly when they have in mind terminating the individual for poor performance, but the legal department might be skittish about the retaliation issue? Well, you're right that that is a very thorny aspect um, to investigations. I have a view about whistleblowers that um, has often caused my clients or my executive team to look at me like I have three heads. Mm -hmm. um, because, I, because I say whistleblowers must always be, you know, seen as a gift. Mm -hmm. And so, you know... There is a perhaps a supposition that they have a, an axe to grind or a bone to pick, but I think you treat whistleblowers with respect, and you know right from the outset you you don't shoot the messenger. Um, they are bringing you information that could be critically important to the ongoing viability of your company, really mm -hmm. at its um, at its roots. So, but that said. You can't let the fact that they're a whistleblower dissuade you from taking legitimate action for mm -hmm. a legitimate performance issue. Mm -hmm. To say that a company can never discipline an employee for a bona fide performance issue just because they once engaged in a protected activity makes no sense to me. But I would say that the burden of proof is, is of course, going to be much higher in those cases. So mm -hmm. I think the main question that em employers have to ask is, why are you disciplining now? So if an employee is guilty of insubordination or an attendance violation or, or worse, but if that bad behavior has been going on for months or even years and the employer has done nothing until after that employee engaged in the protected mm -hmm. activity, well, then it, it makes sense that that discipline is going to likely be seen as retaliation. Mm -hmm. um, and that same result can also occur if the protected employee is singled out for discipline, for what others may have been getting away with all this time. Mm. So, you know, so what's, what's an employer to do, really? Um, unfortunately, what I've seen is that very frequently, um, an employer that is fearing a retaliation claim will just do nothing and treat that employee as untouchable. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that, that 
that that needs to be the case. Right. Uh, I think you recognize that the situation is delicate, um, but you, you don't give them a, a lifelong pass. I think the first issue that you face is, okay, would this discipline be consistent with the way other employees involved in the same or similar conduct were treated? So if the answer is no, that you're not treating similar violators with similar consequences, then you, then you can't take action without first changing that past practice. You know, notify employees in writing that there's a new way of dealing with these kinds of allegations. There's new discipline guidelines. And then acting consistently going forward and not relying on the past behavior. But assuming you can answer that first question in the affirmative, that is that others have been disciplined um, for the same kind of behavior, then you address the next most important question, and that is why are you disciplining this person now? So how long after the employee engaged in the protected activity do you have to wait before we can discipline him or her? And I think if that question has any kind of a gray answer to it, then I think it's, it's wise to maybe give a written warning versus proceeding with more serious discipline, or at the very least, consulting with, um, with counsel to, um, to work through some of those gray areas. It's like you said, Mary, it, you know, the, the, the documentation becomes essential. And I think it's never too late to start documenting problems. Mm -hmm. So that process might require additional time and uh, might require that you give that employee additional chances to correct his or her um, behavior before disciplinary action is taken. But um, building sufficient evidence to, to, to discipline a protected employee um, is preferable to either treating him or her as untouchable or mm -hmm. losing a retaliation lawsuit. Agree. And I think similarly, I would also say it's never too early to document. I think there is um, a lot of fear in people to have to have the challenging conversation with a colleague that on a personal level, they may very much like and respect and feel like uh, they don't want to make things too official too soon. Um, however, I think that can cause problems further down the track if the performance management hasn't gone as planned and there's nothing uh, to indicate that there were concerns with this employee um, because the, the paper trail doesn't show it. But um, there has been a, a concern, uh, just more unspoken, I guess, if you, if you could put it that way, um, in terms of being unofficially um, discussed, and then it becomes too late. So um, uh, as Tom Fox always says, document, document, document. I agree with him and you entirely. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, sometimes there can be a lack of understanding among employees as well as management teams about the role of compliance and how some of their actions, even if meant to be humorous, can undermine us in compliance. What has been your experience of this and how do you recommend best working through these challenges? That the greatest misunderstanding among executive teams that I've worked with in the past uh, is to characterize us as the police, you know, which has a negative undertone of someone that is out there sniffing out infractions, they're looking for wrongdoing, they're pouncing on violations. You know, I've even read 
recently on social media, uh, police forces are taking to Twitter and LinkedIn to lament that some parents are still in this day and age trying to scare their kids into good behavior by saying that if they misbehave, we'll have to call the police. Mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds weird, I know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I suppose those parents are trying to encourage good behaviors, but the effect is to create a sense that the police are bad, they're out to get you. And so those same kids, when they're in trouble or mm-hmm. when they need help, they're much less likely to seek out the police. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the same, the same thing goes for compliance officers. Right. You know, I was, I was a, a compliance officer for a utility that in an industry that had recently been deregulated in Alberta. So there was a regulated side of the entity and an unregulated, and the two had very, very strict rules over how they could interact and the information that they could share, et cetera. And that was part of my role to, to enforce those rules as a compliance officer. And I remember once I was walking down the hall, and it was a very open concept office where you know, all the desks were out in the open and, and the chief operating officer on the deregulated side, you know, I'm sure meant to be humorous, but he would see me coming down the hall and he would make a big show about diving, physically diving under a desk to hide from the compliance police. Mm. His employees thought it was hilarious, Mm. but it made things very difficult for me. Mm -hmm belittled the role, and he made it known that compliance was to be feared and avoided. We were the sales prevention department. You know, I still think about those interactions on a regular basis, and I work very hard to make sure that that I'm not seen in that way in my current role. I would take a much more positive view of, um, you know, what is a compliance officer. It's, It's someone who champions corporate integrity it's you know we we enable the successful deployment of objectives we are teachers we are you know we're guides uh, for the company you know at the risk of of of, you know minimizing this and and making a a joke out of it I don't really mean to make a joke out of it but I actually think of compliance officers as you know we're like the google maps well I mean just think about it Mm -hmm. Um, you I, you know, you tell me where you want to go mm-hmm. and I can help you get there. You tell me, do you want the quickest route? Do you want the safest route? Do you want the route with the most gas stations along the way? Um, you can zoom in, you can zoom out, um, but, but consult the Google Maps before you get on the road. And, and, and that's how I can be of maximum service to you to get you where you're trying to go. Um, and so I do use that analogy from time to time. And again, they sometimes look at me like I have three heads, but other times they react the way you have, which is to agree. Yeah, that is the best analogy I've heard. I mean, I think several of us have heard of sort of the, the lighthouse, that guiding light. But I think that that preciseness about Google Maps and also I love that this analogy gives you the options, right? Like in compliance, we don't want to just be the people that say no, like you can't get in your car at all and block off the, the road in front. 
um, we want to say, well, how is it that you want to get there? And uh, what is it that you need along the way? And we will help you with that. So I'm really thrilled with that, Chris. And it just uh, reminds me how much um, I really admire you for, for being such a strong thought leader, because that is a, a great um, metaphor that I'm sure I'll use going forward. By all means, let's start a Google Maps um, <laughs> a discussion one day. <laughs> Fabulous. And armed with the benefit of hindsight, what key piece of advice would you give to new graduate Chris about to embark on her career? I just I just celebrated the 28th um, anniversary of this very predetermined idea of what the road was going to look like and what my career was going to look like. But when I today think back on all of my zigs and zags, I mean, I, I realized that those 180 degree you know, hairpin career turns that I've taken were what have given me the greatest satisfaction over my career. You know, the, the reinvention of oneself and one's career is tremendously gratifying. Um, I think that it has kept me learning and growing, developing, uh, and I think it keeps a person young. So uh, I think what I would tell my young self is do not ever be afraid of taking a bit of a leap and um, doing something completely different or taking a risk on a burgeoning industry or profession um, that's not fully built out yet. You can be part of, you know, you can be part of the, the, the infrastructure that builds it out. Um, you can be part of something that's groundbreaking and cool um, if, you, if, if you do take those risks. So, so I think that's the advice that I would give to any, to myself or any young compliance professional just coming into the, into the profession. That's great. Thank you, Chris. The Women in the, work, um, the Women in the Workplace report released in 2018 by McKinsey and & Company and LeanIn.org found that 64% of women experience microaggressions in the office, which include being mistaken for being more junior and having their capability questioned. When women are exposed to such behaviour, they are three times more likely to think about quitting on a regular basis. Christine Poras has discovered, has studied incivility in the workplace and found that even witnessing incivility at work can make people three times less likely to help others. So what part can you play in reducing microaggressions and the effect of them in the workplace? Be conscious of your own words and whether they could be reframed in a way that might un unintentionally or subconsciously belittle others. If you see someone else on the business end of a microaggression, help to gently draw it to the attention of the offending person by saying it was probably not your intent and explain how the comment could have been perceived or interpreted in a less than kind way. If you don't feel confident enough to do that, brighten up the day of the person experiencing the, experiencing the microaggression and compliment them on recent work product that you have admired to help remind them of the positive effects they have at work. That's all we've got time for today. Thank you, Chris, for being a wonderful guest and thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.